0: All right, take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Luke chapter 21, Luke 21. We had a good crew with us on uh, Wednesday night when we walked through this passage and just tried to understand uh, what it has to say, and uh, hopefully that will serve um, those that were here for that and have a better understanding. Hopefully, we'll be able to do more things like that in the future, but we'll be in Luke 21. Jesus has a teaching that will extend through verse 30, chapter, uh, chapter 21 verse 5 through verse 38 is sort of the, the section that we're jumping into, but we'll just cover verses 5 through 19 this morning. Um, when I first went shopping at Aldi, I had no idea what to expect. It's kind of a secret club that you gotta be initiated into. Um, if I had, I know I've shared this with some of you, but if I, if I had known what to expect, I think I would have acted a little different. I went, and I had no quarter, so therefore I had no cart. Um, and I was trying to buy a lot of things, and so I was trying to hold all of my things. Um, I didn't know the pattern, you know, there, it's kind of, it, once you go past a spot, it's hard to get back, because it's sort of these long corridors, and anyways, I finally got all my things and went to the checkout line and tried to pay with a credit card, which you can't do. You got to have a debit card or, or cash, and so I eventually found that, and I dropped a dozen eggs on the floor, and they cracked, and it was it was a terrible experience, and I vowed to never go back to Aldi ever again. Uh, but now we love Aldi because I know what to expect. If I had known what to expect then, I would have had a quarter, and I would have been ready with my debit card and all these things. And now I know what to expect, and so I, I act differently, and I have a different understanding of how to step into that situation. In a sense, what Jesus is going to do in this. Chapter, chapter 21 is answer some questions of the disciples and help them know what to expect in the future so that they can they can rightly prepare for what is coming, so that they're not blind to things. And, in, and he's doing that for us as well. He's helping us to know what the future is going to look like, what to expect that is coming at the end of days. Um, there's differences of opinion about how to interpret this as with anything that deals with, with end times or or the, the future or what is coming. But I think as we go through this, I, I'm going to share my best understanding of this text. And you may have differences of nuance about how you take different sections. But I do trust that Jesus's main points are going to be clear, even if we differ about exactly what certain verses say. Um, and so I'm going to do my best. and I, And I want to encourage you, let's discuss this um, we have the Holy Spirit. What, this is not—I'm uh, not the only person that can discern what's said in this passage, um, and so let's work together to understand this. But study your Bible, help, and try to understand what this has to say. Uh, but also, we need to recognize, and we talked about this on Wednesday, that we come with a certain framework to Scripture. We come with with preconceived ideas that sometimes we can make—we can put onto this passage. So maybe you have been taught a certain way about how things are going to pan out in the end, or what the end times schedule is going to look like. And maybe this is going to butt up against that a little bit. But we always want to let text be king. We want to let Scripture tell us what is most important. And so we recognize our frameworks, and your framework might be right, but also let's make sure that that we're letting Scripture speak for itself And, 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 and tell us what it has to say. So we're going to look at 5-19 at through 19 of chapter 21 this morning, uh, though again remember it goes through chapter, verse 36 is where this teaching is. There's probably even a more natural breaking point at verse 24, and we will get there next week, but we're going to take our time going through this so that we can um, understand it. So we're breaking it up simply for the sake of time um, and, and to understand it better. But let's go ahead and read uh, chapter 21, verses 5-19, through 19, and then we'll... We'll walk through this passage and try to apply it. It says in verse 5, And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he, Jesus, said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be? you will gain your lives. It's always important to consider the context of a passage. And if you'll remember, it's been months since we have been there, but you might remember Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, um, proclaiming himself as as king. And while that's been months since we looked at it, it's just a few days since Jesus did that, came into Jerusalem on the donkey, proclaiming himself as as Messiah. After that, we, we went into this section in, in, in Luke chapter 20 where Jesus is confronting different religious leaders and, and talking about his authority over different uh, realms of, of knowledge and different things. And, and so this is sort of a continuation. He's still teaching, he's still instructing, but this is a specific instruction. And after this extensive teaching about the future, about what is to come, We are going to jump into the section where we we see Jesus betrayed, where we see Jesus tried and crucified, and then at the end of the book resurrected. So this, all these events, remember, are occurring within the last week of Jesus' life. So this teaching is one of the last major teachings that Jesus is going to give. And soon after this, he will die. It, It seems that... Jesus spent a lot of time in the temple and around the temple. We see that here that he is near the temple. And if you look at verses 37 and 38 of this chapter, it says, Every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. So he's sort of coming and going from the temple to the Mount of Olives and then back to the temple. Mark and Matthew seem to indicate that this discourse took place maybe on that walk from the temple to the Mount of Olives, or even on the, Olive, the Mount of Olives, you may have heard of the Olivet Discourse. That's another name for for this. But wherever it happened, it began at some point in the in the temple. They're, they're there, and they people are speaking of the temple. It says how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings. Um, they they are admiring how beautiful this temple is, the stones and the architecture. And it really was history tells us a beautiful structure this was not just the temple that was constructed by the exiles you remember in ezra where they built it and there were some who had seen solomon's temple and what did they do when they saw this temple that had been rebuilt they wept because it was so much more it was so much smaller it was so minuscule compared to solomon's temple but here there's there's a shift This temple is undergoing a massive restoration and reconstruction and and reconfiguration that actually began 20 years before Jesus was born by Herod the Great. And it's continued now for his life for 30 years. So it's been under construction for about 50 years. And it's going to to continue to be constructed until A.D. 63, 64. So another... 30-some years after Jesus. There's this massive reconstruction that's happening within the temple and it's it's being adorned. It's being, some said, even more beautiful than Solomon's temple. And the stones that these disciples are referring to were, were truly impressive. They measured some of them. There's a historian, Josephus, who says they measured 45 by 5 by 6 cubits. Now, for those of you who don't have a tape measure with cubits on it, uh, a cubit's about 18 inches. And so... These stones were about 67 and a half feet wide. These are massive stones. Some of them were a little bit smaller, but still they were about 40 feet wide. These are giant, huge, pure white stones. So much so that people said that when they came into Jerusalem, that, that the temple looked like a snow-capped mountain there in the middle of the city. It was this beautiful structure. It was the centerpiece of Jerusalem. It's imposing, and it had all the appearance of, of stability. It looked like it would be there forever. This thing is never going to be destroyed, and it's not just the centerpiece of the city or Jerusalem. It's not just a beautiful place a beautiful architecture, but this is this is the center of Israel itself, of the Jewish people, and of their religion. This is this is where they go to meet with God. Think about it. this is the time of the Passover, right? And so pilgrims had were, were all over Jerusalem. They had been coming. They came year after year, made this trek to Jerusalem to remember their rescue out of slavery in Egypt. And they are there in the city. And you can imagine for the past 50 years they keep coming. And every time they come, they go to the temple and see how it's changed, how it's become even more beautiful. It's it's growing. It's 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 growing in beauty. It's growing in, in size. It's this beautiful place. And each year they come. And so the temple, though, represents more than just a beautiful building. It's It's the dwelling place of God. This is where they come to meet with God. So it's amazing then to hear Jesus' response to his disciples. They say, Jesus, look at these beautiful stones. Look at this beautiful temple. And you might expect him to say, yeah, it's breathtaking. Or maybe, you know, he's come in on this donkey. Maybe they want him to say, and soon the glory of this temple is going to be restored because my kingdom is coming here. What does he say? Says the exact opposite of what anyone would expect. He says, you see this temple? You see all these beautiful stones? There's a day coming when not one stone will be left on top of another. This temple, he says, is going to be completely and utterly destroyed. My son likes to play with blocks. He likes to build towers. And like any two-year-old, three-year-old, he also likes to destroy those towers. We've all experienced this, right? And when, when when he destroys the tower, he destroys it. He levels it. I mean, two blocks on top of each other is not destroyed. They need to be pushed off, <laughs> completely decimated. And that's, in a sense, this picture here, that this temple is going to be totally and completely destroyed. Of course, we see, if you know anything about modern-day Israel, there is still the, the, the wailing wall, the western wall that is there, that still stands, and that doesn't go against what Jesus is saying here. It is, in a sense, um, hyperbole or, or a metaphor of sorts. He's, he's making the point that the temple in Jerusalem will be totally, completely destroyed. And it was. This is not the first time Jesus has talked about the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. He did it in chapter 13, verses 34 through 35. And you remember, we we recently looked at 19, 41 through 44. This is what Jesus says. Remember, he's riding the donkey in and he starts to weep. He weeps over the city. He says, would that you, Jerusalem, even you had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you. And surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground. You and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. So those who hear Jesus say this thing is going to be destroyed. Those that admired and loved this temple, they hear him say it's all coming down. They say, when? When is that going to happen? And what will be the sign? So it's two questions. When will these things be? And what will be the sign beforehand that warns us that these things are going to happen? It's interesting, they don't respond by saying, oh, really? They don't say, are you sure, Jesus? Because this temple looks pretty secure to me. What do they say? When is it going to happen? And what will be the sign? Why? Because they believe that Jesus is a true prophet. And that what he says will truly indeed happen. So the disciples ask, when will this be what will be the sign of its coming? And it's in response to these two questions that the teaching flows. We need to remember that. I want to emphasize that because Jesus is going to answer those questions. His response is is based on those two questions. When will the temple be destroyed, Jesus? And what will be the sign beforehand that the temple is going to be destroyed? If we come to this passage assuming that as Jesus is talking about the future, He's talking about something that is future for us, that everything in here is future for us. We will get confused and we won't understand the passage correctly because he's speaking to the disciples. Right. And these events for them, some of them were future for them. But for us, they are history. They have happened. Jesus predicted they would happen. They did happen. But if back here it is future for the disciples, and for the listeners of that day, and even for the early readers of Luke, this was coming. But for us, it's something we can look back and see. So part of what Jesus is doing here is is getting rid of the confusion that surrounded the, the destruction of the temple and the end of all times. Because if you're a Jewish person in Jerusalem, and you hear the temple and Jerusalem are going to be completely destroyed, you assume that is also the end of the world. That, that makes total sense for them. If the temple's destroyed, then the end of the world is coming, and the Son of Man is coming back. And Jesus is trying to clear up that distinction to say, listen, yes, the temple will be destroyed, but that is not the end of the age. That is not when the Son of Man will return. These are distinct and different things. Daryl Bach was helpful to me on this. He says Luke clearly shows how the destruction of A.D. 70—that's the destruction of the temple and of Jerusalem—in A.D. 70 is distinct from, but related to, the end. The two events should not be confused. But Jerusalem's destruction, when it comes, will guarantee as well as picture the end. It will guarantee that what Jesus said about the end is true, and it will also picture what Jesus says about the end, is what it's going to look like. It will guarantee as well as picture the end, since one event mirrors the other. Both are a part of God's plan as events move towards the end. So here's what I want us to think. Verses 8 through 24. As far as I understand and interpreting it, refer to the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem and of the city of Jerusalem. And and they, they tell forth that event clearly. But they also mirror or foreshadow what the end of all time will be like. I hope that makes sense. So Jesus is talking about the days preceding the destruction of Jerusalem. What did they ask for? They asked for a sign. And now what Jesus is going to do in verses 8 through 11, he's going to say, here's some characteristics of things that will happen before the temple is destroyed in Jerusalem, but they are not the sign that it's going to happen. And and he says there's going to be a period of time, a time of deception and distress. So verses 8 through 11, I just we can call it a time of deception and distress. Verses 8 through 11, they talk about, Jesus is thinking about um, these things that will mark the end. It says there in verse verse 9, These things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. The end. What are they asking about? The end of what? The end of the temple. I think that's what the end there is referring to, that he's talking about the end of the temple. The end of the temple, the end of Jerusalem, will not happen right away. But these things must happen First, and now he describes what they are. He says that people are going to show up and they're going to say, I am he. I'm the Messiah. I've come back. They're going to show up and they're going to say, the time is at hand. Jerusalem is ready to be destroyed. And what does Jesus say? Don't listen to them. Don't go after those guys because it's not yet. That is not the sign. If someone comes and says they're me or says the time is at hand, that's not me. Don't listen to them. And he says, when you hear another thing, when you hear of Of wars and tumults, don't be terrified. Because these things have to happen first, but the end is not coming yet. There's going to be difficulty. He breaks that out even more. He says this time is going to be marked by nations and kingdom rising up against each other. It's going to be marked by by wars and the the threat of war. It's going to be be marked by earthquakes, by famines, by natural disaster, by, by pestilence disease. Jesus assures us here that in those days before armies come and destroy Jerusalem that these things are going to happen but that is not the end yet he says. All these things are signs that the temple will be destroyed but they are not right, they they happen before it will be destroyed. Mark says they're labor pains. They're a signal that something is going to happen but just because labor pains start doesn't mean the baby's coming now. I know that from personal experience. It's usually... Labor pains and like 24 hours, you know, long time to be in labor. Not that I've really experienced it that much, but, um, so there's, there's, there's these, these things that are going to happen, but there is a final sign that's coming, but this is, these things are not the final sign, is what he's saying. Now, remember, this, this is what's happening before the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, but yet it also mirrors what the end times will be like for us. He says they will be marked by, by false messiahs, rumors of wars, fighting, earthquakes, destruction, disease. But that is not the sign that the end has come. Isn't that the case for our days? Isn't that, Hasn't it been the case for all of history? That there are these labor pains, even Paul talks about that, there are these labor pains that creation feels groaning, as it were, waiting for the redemption of all things. But it's not a sure sign that the end is coming. So for all of history, since Jesus left, until the present time, there have been nations rising up against nations. There have been wars. There have been tumults. There have been people saying, I'm the Messiah. There have been, there have been pestilence. There's been disease. We can think about in our own day, just think about something like Ebola that wipes through. If that's not a sign of, of disease, there's famine in Somalia. These things exist in the world. And Jesus is saying those things will happen, but the end is not yet. And I think that's what Jesus is, is saying and what, why Luke gives this to us. Because otherwise we would say, well, that's all related to the destruction of Jerusalem. But there is a mirror for us that says these false messiahs are going to show up. Don't listen to them. And when wars and rumors of wars and nations rising up against each other and earthquakes and all these things, yes, it's a sign that I will come. But it's not a sign that I'm coming now. It's labor pains, and it reminds us that Christ is coming. We need to beware. Beware of those who have some sort of special knowledge about dates and times and when Christ is coming back. Beware of of drawing exact parallels between the newspaper and specific events in Scripture. We can say the nation will rise against We can see wars and say, wow, Jesus is coming back at some point. It's a reminder of that, but it's not the full and final sign. He's going to give us that later. We should re- be reminded that the coming of the Son of Man, remember, is going to be crystal clear. We saw that in Luke 17, 22 through 24 Jesus says to his disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. You'll want the end to come. You'll want me to return, but it won't happen. And they will say to you, look here, or look there. Same advice. Don't go follow them. He says, For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. You remember that? It's going to be crystal clear. It's going to be like lightning, a lightning bolt that lights up the sky. It'll be clear that it's time for him to come. And we're going to see next week that he's going to give a specific sign. Remember, they want to know when it's going to happen. He says, just a preview, verse 20, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know, that it's desolation is coming you want the sign that's the sign he says when Jerusalem will be destroyed and then in verses 25 through 28 he's going to give us more specifics about the return of the Son of Man so be here next week for that. <laughs> so the the point here though to remember is that he says in verse 12 before all of this so there's something else coming in verses 12 through 19 but but 8 through 11 happen, this period of, of deception, of, of distress, of destruction, this time before Jerusalem is surrounded, before Jerusalem is invaded and decimated. All these things are going to happen. But even before all of that, even before that time of deception and distress, something else is going to happen. See that key word in verse 12? But before all this, meaning before the events of verses 8 through 11, something else is going to happen. We'll track it together. This is. Wouldn't it be nice if he just had a chart or just laid it out chronologically. So 8 through 11, it's going to happen before the destruction of Jerusalem, but it's not the final sign. And he says even before all of that, the events of the things of verses 12 through 19 are going to happen. Okay? So what's 12 through 19 talking about? 8 through 11 describe a time of deception and distress. Verses 12 through 19 describe a time of persecution and witness. Verses 12 through 19 describe a time of persecution and witness. Jesus says that before anything else happens, this time of persecution will happen. Persecution from world powers, persecution from those that are closest to you. And as he writes these words, it's almost as if he's outlining the book of Acts as you read through these things. But he's talking to the disciples and he's telling them what they can expect. Because if you read through these and you start to think about the early church, you can see all of this fulfilled in the book of Acts. You look at verse 12. They will lay hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. Doesn't that happen right at the beginning of the book of Acts? That, that Peter and John go into the temple and heal man, and what happens? They're drug before the rulers and they have to give some sort of testimony and talk about what's going on. You think about Stephen who's martyred. He speaks of what the temple represented, that it wasn't the dwelling place of God, but rather that God does not live in places made with hands. And what happens to Stephen? He's martyred, such that a persecution breaks out and spreads through the whole land and people are leaving Jerusalem because of that. And so it says that you will be delivered and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. Who else but Paul comes to mind who stands before Felix and Festus, who stands before Agrippa. They are brought before these rulers for the sake of Jesus later on he says i he says in verse 16 you will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends families would turn on them and some of you he says they will put to death we can think of james who was killed we can think of the 11 disciples that 10 of them died violent deaths they were martyred of course john just got thrown onto an island to die which I guess that isn't violent, but still it's persecution. They will put you to death. Verse 17, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. And and so you can imagine Jesus speaking to his disciples, to his followers, and he says, before Jerusalem is destroyed, all this craziness is going to happen. And before even that happens, there's going to be a period of persecution. You guys will be persecuted. This is coming. It's coming very soon for these guys. Maybe within the year you might think that these guys are going to be persecuted. They're going to be thrown out of their homes. They're going to be hated by all people for Jesus' sake. Why is he telling them this? He's preparing them. They need to know what is coming. You need to expect that you will be persecuted. But he also says you need to expect that I will be with you. Expect persecution, but expect that I'm going to be with you. He says, verse 13, this will be your opportunity for a witness. It, It doesn't have a a negative view of this he says you're going to be persecuted and this is going to be a great opportunity for you to tell about the gospel about why I have come about who I am as the messiah and verse 14 he says settle therefore in your minds right now don't think about beforehand what you're going to say when you're brought before these guys don't write it down don't have a script ready to go because the holy spirit is going to help you to know what to say such that your adversaries will not be able to contradict you we see this in acts when Peter and John stand before the councils and they, they give the answer, and what do they say? They say, where did these guys come from? They, they could tell that they had been with Jesus. They said, these guys are unschooled. They're not taught in the synagogue. They're not, they're not taught by some leader, but yet they know exactly how to answer, and we can't refute the words that they are saying. Expect to be persecuted, but expect that I will be with you. I will give you the words to say. And remember, this is a mirror. So this will happen before the destruction of Jerusalem and before all those other previous signs, before those labor pains. You will be persecuted and you will be witnesses. And that's a mirror of the present-day church, isn't it? That this is a period of persecution and witness. Why does Jesus tell us this? So that we would know what to expect. Don't be surprised when you are hated by all. For the sake of Jesus. Don't be surprised when you are persecuted. Don't be surprised when your family turns against you. Don't be surprised when governments and religious institutions come up against you. That's what marks the end of the age. That's what marks this period before Christ comes. It's a time of persecution, but also a time with opportunity for witness. This opportunity to speak forth the truth of the gospel. Isn't that what this time is? That we are rejected by the world, but yet we, we, we see it as opportunity to tell forth the greatness of the gospel. Sometimes I think we look at persecution and we automatically assume it's it's a negative thing. But Jesus says, no, it's not purely negative. It's this It's an opportunity. All the distress, all the pain in our lives is opportunity to witness to Christ. And he says, I will give you words to say So there's some promises, I think, and some, some purpose that we can understand that we can take from this. We can know that persecution is an opportunity to witness. When when tough times come, we can know that persecution is an opportunity to witness. So don't don't take hardship in your life as, this is hardship, I don't want to get through it. Say, this hardship's an opportunity. This is my opportunity, Jesus said, to witness. And in that we, we know that persecution is an opportunity to witness. We can also trust The promise that God will give us words and wisdom. We can trust that God will give us words and wisdom. That that promise is true for us. He will help us to know what to say when persecution comes, when difficulty comes. I don't think that's a promise for me as a preacher. I don't think I should stand up here and say, well, God will give me words. I should not prepare. What's he talking about? He's talking about persecution. That when someone is persecuting you, I will give you words to say. Hopefully this isn't persecution for me. We can trust the promises of God that he will give us words and wisdom. And then third, we can find hope in the truth that God protects our souls. We can find hope in the truth that God protects our souls. And that's verse 18, isn't it?
1: Not a hair of your
0: head will perish. How's that possible, Jesus? How's it possible to be persecuted and killed? How's it possible for Paul to have his head cut off and not a hair of his head perish? How does that work? I think what Jesus is pointing to is that ultimately they can kill the body, but they cannot kill the soul. He said it in Luke 12. I tell you, my friends, don't fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he is killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. And then this is interesting. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. He keeps bringing up hairs on your head. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. He says, I'm watching over you. I know everything about you. And ultimately, whatever evil they can bring against you, even if they kill you, your souls are protected. You are safe in Christ. There is no fear. And as we endure, we will gain our lives. Let me give you just three sort of closing applications and then um, point to Christ before we take communion together. So just three closing that probably would, would sweep over this whole chapter, but we'll just think about these this week and we'll probably reiterate them later on. But one is this, nothing on this earth is ultimately permanent. Nothing on this earth is ultimately permanent. You think about those guys looking at that temple structure and saying, this is beautiful and it's going to be here forever. And Jesus says, no, it is not. There is nothing permanent on this earth. I was watching the news and they were showing the drawings for the new Omni Hotel complex that's going in downtown. It is awesome. It looks beautiful. And it's all going to come down in the air. It will not last. Everything that we see, you can look at the brown right there, this giant high rise. It's coming down. This building is coming down. Number one, World Trade Center. It's coming down in the end. Everything will be destroyed in the end. And also with that, the temple, remember, was not just a building, but it represented a religious system that sought salvation apart from Christ. And every religious system that seeks salvation apart from Jesus is coming down. There is no hope in that. The destruction of the temple meant more than just the loss of a great building. It marked that the temple was no longer the place to meet God. When Jesus dies, what happens to that veil? It is torn in two, and the temple is no longer necessary because Jesus is the temple. He is the. He says, I will tear my temple down and raise it up again. He is the one. He, he's the one that gives us access to God. And not only that, but we are the temple of God, indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And the church is the temple of God, together being built up and offering sacrifices to God. Nothing on this earth is ultimately permanent. It's that classic phrase that I've heard so many preachers say growing up, the two things that last forever, the word of God and the soul of man. Everything else is coming down. The gospel will, will, will last. And Jesus says, this earth is ultimately passing away nothing on this earth is ultimately permanent nothing in the future should surprise or shake us nothing that's coming should surprise or shake us he tells us don't be terrified don't worry about these things of these false messiahs don't go after them don't give them the time of day And, and and you're going to be persecuted don't worry about it i'll give you words to say you're going to be killed don't worry about it not a hair of your head will perish nothing In the future should surprise or shake us. And then right along with that, nothing that will happen can ultimately harm us. Nothing in the future can ultimately harm us. The greatest enemy of our souls is unforgiven sin. Because unforgiven sin can damn us for all eternity. And if Jesus has taken that away, there's nothing left to fear. If the persecution and this period of witness, if that's the events that are coming soonest. Then we could say in a sense that Jesus blazes the trail for the disciples in the coming days, doesn't he? We can look here and we can see the book of Acts, but we can also see chapters 22 and 23 of the book of Luke in the life of Jesus. Because we remember, and I love this truth, that Jesus never tells us to do something he has not done. Jesus never says, you go there, I'll stay here. He stands and he says, come, follow me. So we look at this and we see that Jesus had been persecuted and ridiculed for his entire ministry. And then in his last days he would face his trial and his crucifixion and continue to be rejected by those he had come to save He was rejected by his family. You remember through his ministry, they mocked him. They said he's out of his mind. And then in the end, who's he betrayed by? By one of his closest friends. Someone that he ate with every day. Betrayed by a kiss. The disciples would be delivered up to synagogues and before rulers. And Jesus himself was delivered before synagogues and religious leaders. And then he's placed before governors and and earthly rulers. And he stands before them. And he himself is killed. He's crucified. He's humiliated. He goes through this. Yet even in his death, he witnesses, he speaks, he has words to say. He has words to say with his mouth and with his actions. He witnesses to the love and to the justice of God. His death screams out the message that sin has to be punished, that God is wrathful, that God is just, that God hates sin. But it also screams out this message that God is a God of love and God is a God of grace who has given his son to purchase our salvation. And ultimately, verse 18 is true for Jesus, isn't it? That no hair of his head ultimately perished. Because three days later, what happens? He rises again, and he makes that promise true for us. The reason we can trust that not one hair of our head will perish is because Jesus has come back from the dead and gives us hope of life eternal. Jesus blazes the trail for us. And so this morning as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, what we're celebrating the way that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, that no one comes to the Father except through Him. There's no temple that we have to go to. There's no work that we have to do. We, we come to Christ. We trust that, that His death has atoned, has, has paid the penalty for my sin, for your sin, that His righteousness, His perfection are given to us so we can stand before God. Pure. We can stand as his children. In this meal we remember that Jesus fulfills the words of verses 12 through 19 on our behalf. That he's bruised for us. That he's a lamb led to the slaughter. That he's rejected so that we might be accepted. And then as we take this meal we remind ourselves that that's the Christ that we want to follow. We'll follow him wherever he leads. We know that nothing will ultimately harm us. That nothing should shake us. And that nothing but Christ will last forever.